Encore episode. Who is auditing these healthcare bills? Also, that Signal lawsuit. Today, I am speaking with Don Cornelis. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Well, this episode became extremely relevant again after that Cigna case bubbled up in the news. Here's the too long, didn't read version. Attorneys filed a class action lawsuit against Cigna, alleging that the carrier is overcharging for lab services or did overcharge for lab services. The plaintiff is an individual member of a Cigna plan. The complaint tells a pretty wild story on the explanation of benefits, the EOB, that this member received for lab services. The amount billed was over $17,000. My understanding is this member went to LabCorp to get those lab services. Cigna claimed it had negotiated a discount of over $14,000 for those lab services, meaning 17 minus 14 or so, meaning the remaining balance was something like $2,700. Okay, good news, I guess. Instead of the lab services costing $17,000, they cost $2,700 to the plan and member. Except Cigna said to this member that they were only going to pay $471 on the member's behalf. This left the member with the responsibility to fork out over $2,000 in deductible and co-insurance payments. I'm rounding the numbers here for brevity. So in sum, members told she owes 2 k plus out of pocket for charges that were allegedly originally over $17,000. Now, a couple things. The cash price for an uninsured customer at LabCorp for the same services was $449, according to the complaint. Also, weirdly, on the explanation of benefits, Cigna allegedly said that the lab services provider was not LabCorp. It was Health Diagnostic Lab, or everything I just said in all caps with some letters missing, instead of the actual provider, LabCorp. Then the plot thickens. The lawsuit alleges that this Health Diag Lab is a pseudonym for Cigna Healthcare of Arizona, and that this Cigna affiliate used their pseudonym to create a fake invoice. This is also a quote from the complaint. Bottom line, and this is the real point I want to make here, the actual out-of-pocket to the payer was something less than $500, 600 bucks, you would think, but it appears that the plan was hoping to get almost 5x that out of the plan member. And had this plan member met her deductible that year, I would speculate that this 5x would have come out of the pocket of the plan sponsor. Either way, 5x margin, that's some pretty sweet returns. Look, the point I'm making here isn't about this particular case. It's about the totality of the thing. This case just got a whole bunch of attention because as Julie Selznick put it on LinkedIn recently, this case hits all the high notes, overcharging, keeping the spread, fraudulent billing. But think about this for a second. You think this was an isolated incident that someone in Arizona had a brainstorm to juice their quarterly earnings and set up a whole company to jack up one person's lab payments? I don't know. What do you think? As Lee Lewis mentioned on LinkedIn, while this case has a lot going on, a member getting charged $2,500 for what should cost $450 or whatever. He wrote, I've seen worse. I say all this to say, plan sponsors, hi there. Are you getting your claims data and are you having it audited for stuff like this? And by whom are you having your claims data audited for stuff like this? 
And that's not a rhetorical question. I mean, here we have a well-respected payer opening up, allegedly, a reseller of lab services sending allegedly fake invoices. That's one way to vertically integrate, I guess. Here's another way you can vertically integrate that maybe we all should be aware of. Companies that provide audit services that many plan sponsors use to check if claims have been paid properly. Those same auditing companies, these same companies oftentimes have another book of business besides their auditing claims for plan sponsors work. They also work with provider organizations doing revenue optimization. Right. They help providers maximize their revenue, revenue that is coming from... mm, claims they send plan sponsors. Sometimes when I talk about this stuff, I feel like I'm in a cartoon, like that meme with all the Spider-Men pointing at each other and nobody knows who is actually Spider-Man because everybody is dressed up in the same costume pointing and saying the other guy is the one causing the problems here. As Don Cornelis says in this episode today, approximately 30% of healthcare spending, i.e. healthcare payments, are some combination of fraud, waste, and or abuse. It's a billion dollar a day problem. In this episode, we dig into the three main issues that Dawn tends to find when looking at the claims that were going to hit the checkbook of a plan sponsor as per their payer or TPA. First main issue, claims that were not paid correctly. Turns out 5 to 10% of claims just aren't paid right. There's a whole motley crew of errors that can transpire, but bottom line, the bill was for 10 bucks and somehow the plan sponsor was going to pay 15 bucks or they double paid. Number two main issue that Don sees in the claims that plan sponsors would have paid. Things that if we knew about them, we could do better in the interest of the member. Jeff Hogan put this really well on LinkedIn the other day. He wrote, today's purchaser fiduciary needs great analytics to prioritize the needs of their members, including finding wasteful and abusive vendors, sites of care, cost and quality variation in health systems, do labs that the plan is being charged $2,500 instead of $450 go here or in the next problematic category? I'm not sure. The last main issue that Dawn sees in contracts are claims that are just wrong. They should never have been sent in the first place. We also talk about kind of a different issue entirely, the hidden fees that are buried in some of these payer contracts, which felt like a reprise, frankly, of the conversation I had with Paul Holmes a few weeks ago in episode 397, talking about PBM contracts and all the hidden fees and ultimately probably costly provisions buried in them that plan sponsors are on the hook for a lot of times very unknowingly. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Today, I'm speaking with Don Cornelis, co-founder and director of transparency at Claim Informatics. Don Cornelis, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you for having me on your podcast today. So one of the things that you have talked quite a bit about is what you call, I'm using air quotes, but you can't see them, the story in the data. In your role, you see a lot of employer data go by, you know, the claims that a self-funded employer is paying. What does the story of this data show you? There's a lot of bad, egregious behavior out there in the data. I mean, approximately 30%. So if we're looking at, you know, $3.7 trillion in healthcare expenditures, that's close to a trillion dollars a year. It's a $1 billion a day problem. Who's responsible for this? These claims are being submitted by whom? Yeah, so there's two parties, right? You have the service entity, the provider of healthcare service, and then you have the payer, the one that's actually processing the claims. So there's a cycle for claims to be processed, and it starts out at whether the doctor's office or the hospital, and the claim flows through electronically through a really sophisticated, complex system, 
and ends up at the, whether it's a Cigna or Aetna or uh, Blue Cross or a third party administrator, and they process those claims. You've said that there's three problems that you typically find in the data when you look at it. Let's just start out. What are those three problems? The first thing is, are claims being paid correctly? The second thing would be, what is it that we don't know and what can we do better in the best interest of the member? The third thing would be just plain wrong. Let's go to that first one then, which is, were the claims paid correctly? What percentage of savings to a purchaser of healthcare, like a self-insured employer, for example, does this typically represent? Plans that have we've recognized and identified losses as high as 18%, but our typical range varies between 5 and 10%. So 5 and 10% of the total aggregate claims, they just aren't paid right. It's like there's just a mistake, you know, the bill was for 10 bucks and they're paid for 15. And there's going to be different types, right? You're going to have where, oh my gosh, the provider should not have billed that code. They unbundled things. They they billed incorrectly, right? And the payment system didn't capture it. So it just let it fly through and get paid. Or do you have that fat finger mistake where they just billed the wrong code and they didn't realize it? It could be that somebody's actually sending the wrong bill, but it also could be that there's a tangle in the processing. Yep. Yeah. So the employers become surprised when we come in and we look at the data. There's three things that it's just the same scenario in, in every situation. I'll call the three myths, right? The first thing is billing and coding by providers is accurate and honest. Everybody thinks that everybody is up to par and that it's accurate and it's honest and that nobody's abusing the system. The second thing would be my healthcare payer, you know, my carrier, we'll call it because we know the employer is actually the payer. So we won't get into that, the words that we use there, but the folks that are responsible for paying the claims, right? That they have a system in place that catches billing and coding errors and that captures mistakes that their systems are occurring. And, and that there's somebody always looking back to make sure that things are being processed. And yes, there are payment integrity programs out there. But when we look at the data, we should see that, right? We should see things are being re-adjudicated and fixed. And we're not seeing that. The third myth would be, if I don't know there's waste in my claims, then I'm not at risk. And for self-funded entities that are under ERISA and federal guidelines, that cannot be so further from the truth. You know, the old saying, what you don't know won't hurt you too often, that's going to be proven false. You said a couple of things that I just want to circle back on. One of them is you aren't necessarily seeing our typical cohort of payers pushing back on invoices as you'd expect them to be doing. Is that kind of like they're just paying every single bill and you're not seeing any of them push back or is it some continuum? There are systems in place that do the best job it can. And we noticed the varying factor between, we'll call it carriers, the national carriers. There's a varying degree at how sophisticated their systems are to stop fraud, waste, and abuse, to stop just simple payment errors. Some are good at it and some are really bad at it. Bad at it, meaning they can do a lot better. Like when we see common errors that should just be automatic, meaning they're 100% preventable, with just simple technology that might've been developed back in 2012, by the way. And we're not seeing that activity. There's a problem. Why aren't they doing that? Like, it's kind of like you got one job. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what's the why here? The rationale that we typically hear, that's unacceptable, by the way. The rationale is, well, we have to consider our entire book of business. And that would just shut down the system. So we can't have that. We'll have too many appeals. So we're just going to let these fly through. And if we capture them on the back end, great. 
because they'll say that they do have a post-payment review and that they are effective tools that do retract plan assets when they've been overpaid. So let's make it very clear. The payers, carriers, they know that inappropriate dollars go out on a daily basis. It's not that it's not known. And my mindset is, if you know it, it needs to be fixed because we can't spare 5%. We can't spare 10%, not much less that 18% school district that we had that, that lost all that money. We've got to be able to do better. Those same programs, by the way, that are national big box vendors are on the other side of the fence as well, what we call revenue optimization. Let me just interject here because I think what you're talking about right now is the same... Can we get some names here? Because I'm not exactly sure who... Like, who do you yeah. mean by... Publicly traded companies, anybody that has business with like the states or, you know, Medicare that does audit identification recovery, HMS, Performant, Contivity, Optum, they've all have their segment in both sides of the industry where we optimize revenue for the providers. And that's okay to do that as long as it's within compliance, right? So what you're saying is that the vendors an employer might hire to ensure that claims are paid correctly is the same vendor that also has another business unit working with the health systems to maximize revenue. That's correct. They're looking at the bills that an employer is paying and employers catching on one side of the thing. And then the other side of the house that's telling hospitals, this is what they're doing over there. <laughs> yeah. So if I know, and again, there's, you have fraud, waste, abuse, there's three words, right? Each one actually is unique. Meaning a waste is like, why did you do that x-ray, right? But abuse is where a lot of folks cross the line and they think it's okay. And if they cross the line for maybe a year and two years and they, they just increase their revenue by 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, and nobody's saying anything about it. And then maybe somebody knocks on the door and says, oh, hey, you know what? We shouldn't have paid that. We need to retract some of those payments back. Oh, if I'm only giving 10 cents back on the dollar, okay. We're not getting in trouble for it. There's systems in place that if I bill certain ways, like, I went to a, a provider's office and said, there's so many different things that you can do to increase revenue by 20%. It's that easy because the systems in place that are there to capture it are just not where they should be right now. So the big box vendor goes over to the health system. You want to increase revenue by 20%? Let me show you how you do it. And in some cases, because I've got some really good doctor friends out there that they've been approached many times. And I always have to set the record straight and they actually are convinced, no, it's okay. Because everybody over in Idaho is doing it too. It's there. This is okay to build this way. And I'm like, no, it's not. So they're actually convinced. There's seminars that they go to that they get convinced. Now, I'm not saying everybody's out to rip off the system, but when it becomes the norm, that's what's very bothering. What we see compared to the abusive billing 15 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, it is much different. There is more of it. And when you look at the charts on revenue optimization firms and you look at the growth in that market, and you look at the improper payment rates that are still up there and they're not going down, that is factual information that supports what I'm saying today. What's the barrier here? You know, like if an, I'm an employer, maybe I just don't know, but I'm an employer. Are there any other barriers to an employer getting a handle and making sure that their bills aren't are paid right? Yeah, there are barriers in the marketplace. I like to call them hurdles because we've had a couple ERISA cases that have really paved the way and is opening the door up 
to clients accessing their data. You just inferred one, which I just want to make sure is we're stating explicitly. So one of these barriers is employers actually getting hold of their data so that they can audit it themselves. Absolutely. Okay. The one number one barrier that I always start off with, let's look at your ASO agreement. Let's look at that agreement that you have between you, uh, the employer, and the we'll call it the carrier slash payer. After we've gone through the agreement, they're like, I had no idea we signed up for this. Like, I did not know. The consultant didn't know. The the fiduciary attorney that looked at it did not know. The way they write contracts and anybody that just looks at it from a layman says, okay, everything looks cool here. And when we come in, it's like, no, we're going to strategize together. The agreements that are out there right now are in total violation of federal RISA guidelines. We're trying to get that change. We're trying to uh, get our clients to say, you need to take a stand and you need to get an arrest attorney and you need to change your agreement because that's going to be your first mitigation act that you need to have as a fiduciary. That being said, it sounds like if you are working with an attorney who knows what they're doing, push comes to shove, an employer can get their data. Yes. Large carriers have in their provisions, oh, it's okay for us to share your data with all of our friends, all of our vendors. We are allowed to do whatever we want with it. But when it comes to you and that's giving you your data, no, there's a different rule set for that. We'll give you data, but we can't share this. We can't share that. I don't know how anybody can substantiate that. The party that writes the check that is fully responsible legally does not have access to all data points. I think once carriers realize that there's a credible organization that's going to be handling the data, that gives a lot more support than just an employer going by themselves and saying, I want to have our CPA look at our data. Let's go to number two in our list of what are the problems that you tend to find in the data when you wind up looking at it. So the first one was just, we covered a bunch of other things in the context of the first one, but it's kind of like, you know, were claims paid correctly, just, you know, accounting wise in a way. The second one that you mentioned is what we don't know about, but could do better. Our lenses, when we look at data, is what's in the best interest of the member. And it just makes life easy that way. So when you look at the data and you say, wow, what are the really key cost drivers? We know what you might have been told at renewal. Oh, there's a 15% renewal because high cost claimants. But really, what are those? Let's figure out why the costs are going up or what can we do to do better to reduce those costs. We look at what is the network effectiveness? What have you been told? Okay, what, 65% effective discount, 75%? We take that myth and throw it out once we show the data to say, let's really look at what is the cost drivers, what's working too. Well, give me an example of something you've seen that's working where you're like, okay, well, we figured out what's working. Let's do more of that. Yeah, so there's regional networks in certain areas of the country. We're like, my mouth is open, right? You can't visualize that, but I'm like, I'm in awe. My jaw's dropping going, wow, they did a great job on their contracts. They're using Medicare Plus. They've got some reasonable contracts and it's fair. That's in the best interest of the member. In the example of the regional health plan, a lot of times employers have several networks that employees can choose from. You know, they've got several health plans and you've got your high deductible vendor and you've got your, you know, PPO vendor. So basically what you're saying is if you discover in this particular case, maybe you'll discover that one of those preferred provider networks is better than another. Data is the truth. See, it's not so much the health system and what they are charging. It's about what the agreement is with that healthcare, what the contracted rate is agreed to. 
That's what drives our cost. In this second category, it's not that the bill is wrong. It's that what you agreed to pay for is wrong. If you look through the data, you can show that, oh, well, employer, did you know that you're paying, you paid 650 grand for somebody's knee replacement when there's another place that's 22 that's actually better? And then once an employer has that information, you can't do anything about things you don't know. So once this information is brought to light, then that employer can contemplate how they want to move toward things that are working well and move away from things that clearly they're overspending. Data-driven decisions. You know, I mentioned a lot about the carriers and national carriers, and I'm not here to pick on anybody, but data speaks for itself. And when we bring that to light, It changes the dynamics. Now employers have something that they can use to make better decisions for their members. We talked about things being improperly paid and fraud, waste, and abuse. But there's also a lot of hidden little cost drivers that folks are totally clueless with. And it's in their agreement. It's just they didn't know how that impacts. We call it hidden fees. I'm not going to make any assertion that folks are trying to hide things. But hidden fees is used because it's not transparent to the employer. So when I get a bill and I'm paying for fees, you get an invoice, right? Okay, it's per member per month. I paid that. I'm paying this invoice because there's a shared savings program. You'll see a percentage for that. And then there's just other things that are in there, but I'm not. it's not on the reports. So one key element, if anybody walks away from this uh, session that we have, and if they can just ask for, what am I paying for? Give me a list of every fee that is associated with processing claims. And a lot of it's hidden into the recovery programs that they have. There's fees associated with, if you go use this other network over here, we're going to get a percentage of savings. So the higher the dollar, the charges, the higher the savings, the higher the fee. Those types of fees need to be examined because we have some clients that actually pay more in those hidden fees and they actually pay for the per member per month charge to process claims. Again, hidden fees sort of falls into this, what don't we know about what we could do better? So it might be stuff with the care itself that it's just like suboptimal or too much payments being made to put it more bluntly, but then also there's hidden fees, there's little other things which could ultimately add up based on what you just said to be considerable total dollars if you look at it in the aggregate. And there's no value there. It's not like it's the Mm -hmm. employee is getting any healthcare out of that middleman charging that upcharge. Excellent point you just made there. And in some cases, what we think the provider's getting paid, they may have not even gotten that full payment because there's some other agreement in there that says, oh, we don't necessarily are going to pay that provider everything that we're telling you we're paying them. So that's a whole, probably another podcast right there. But that's, <laughs> uh, that's coming out into light, right? The more people that have access to data, the more information is being ascertained and the truth comes out. And we no longer can put our blinders onto it. So let's talk about the third thing in our list of the problems that we find in the data when we, when we look for it. So recapping, the first one is were claims paid correctly. The second one is, you know, what we don't know about, but we could do better. And, and here's the third one that you had mentioned. Let's ID anything that shouldn't be there at all. In other words, assuming we're talking about fraud here. Exactly. There's no enforcement on it. And if you look at, you hear about all the cases for DOJ, and you hear about the big one, I don't know, $438 million for Stanford Hospital. They'll pay dimes on the, on the millions to, for the, a settlement and they'll just have an agreement to say, okay, we won't do it again. And that's it. No, there's no type of enforcement and it could be into the billions of dollars. In the healthcare system, it's kind of like an open market. 
And there's plenty of articles on that out there that explain all of this. If- you can't chalk it up to, oh, somebody had a fat finger or Mary didn't know what she was doing. You know what I'm saying? It's a strikingly high number to be an outright mistake. The definition of a fraud is not so much I'm knowingly and I'm doing it. For healthcare fraud, it's you are attesting when you bill for a service, you're attesting that's exactly what took place and that's the service that was rendered. When you submit that bill, that's your attestation that says, I know what I'm doing. I'm billing it and I'm doing it. And if we come down and we say across the board for the last five years, this is what you've done, then there's an intent there, isn't there? It's not like we don't educate providers and that they're not getting educated out there. These are the little known things that we can identify across the board, across the United States. I'm speaking to data itself, real life data, that across the board, doesn't matter what region it's in, we're identifying where things are being built, shouldn't be built and being processed that should have been captured. 100% preventable, by the way. The system should be set up to capture that. It sounds like this this all is eminently catchable. You know what I mean? So the good news for an yes. employer is, is that if you actually have, I'm going to say, you know, someone without a vested interest, if you have someone with the skills to, what do you call it, audit claims? Like what's the correct verb here? The word is the audit, right? The audit the claims, but we, we look at it as another, there needs to be another layer of claim administration services. Right now you're paying somebody to process your claims and they do pretty much a good job, but we know that there's a five to 10% up to 18% factor, right? So there needs to be an embedded process that has no conflict of interest with any parties at all that is gonna have a second look that includes like a safe harbor type of program where you've got your claims being looked at constantly on an ongoing moving forward basis. Because the last thing we want to do is keep capturing things on the back end. You have to, we have to stop that cycle. By doing the recovery, we have our finger on the pulse of the providers and they, we can tell which ones are actually, oh, they're not going to change their behavior. And most of them, by the way, are like, we had no idea. We hired a billing company. They increased our revenue. We had no idea. They literally will come out and say that. And I let them know, look, you are at full risk here. If you continue, like under our program, we're asking for the money back. Under Medicare or Medicaid, you can be shut down. You can be put on the exclusion list. That's where you get booted out of the federal and state health plan because you've been convicted of fraud. But what about providers who want to do the right thing? You know, like, how do I make sure that I am not inadvertently harming patients and employers by trying to manage my cash flow? Even on that side, it's, it's so important because there's some good folks out there, look, to make sure that whatever program you have in place, that there's a payment integrity program, a billing integrity program to make sure that you are in compliance. Does, you know, a physician or a clinician who is working at a large health system, does the equation change at all? The folks that are on the front lines, they're the ones at risk and they are really getting uh, a raw deal out there because most of the providers now are lar- owned by large health systems and they're using their licensures to bill these codes and the billing companies that are hired to bill these codes. I mean, Stanford, from what I read in the uh, complaint, there, it's a 600 bed hospital system. They have 300 billers, 300 billers for a 600 bed hospital system. There's something wrong with that story. Like that alone is a red flag. Now, okay, like I've been in the business probably too long. So you're going to hear that negativity. But the reality is any program that you have, if it sounds too good to be true, you've got to have another third party that's no conflict of interest. Check it out and make sure that everybody's flying right and that everybody's in alignment with the proper integrity principles 
and core values of that entity. Yeah, I could see if I'm a provider though, you know, especially when payers themselves make life really difficult with stupid prior auths. There's some good prior auths, but let's just call out the stupid ones because there are. Like mm-hmm. they make it so difficult to do the right thing by patients that providers in some ways, you know, like you get somebody who's doing, trying to do a really good job and do right by patient and they realize that they have to write a different code in order for the patient to get the actual care that this patient needs because the payer is mm-hmm. making it so tough. But then by doing it, the provider themselves is at, is at personal risk. Therefore, like who loses in all this? The patient, right? Right. And just stay, stay above board and stay compliant. Yeah, no, there are some really bad deals that providers have within their contracts that just make no sense. And they've been forced to take what they can get. And maybe that's driving some bad behavior. But I think most, for the most part, 98% of folks really just want to do what's right. And they're there. They went to school to take care of people. They made an oath. The monkey muck comes in with everybody that's not even rendering the care. It's the private equity firms that came in. It's the large health systems that came in that are being bought out by folks that want to get into healthcare and make, you know, their millions and billions. I mean, look at some of the hospitals out there that are nonprofit. It's just insane what the system has turned into and it needs to change and it's going to change. We, we talk about a lot of serious things. We talk about some of the egregious behavior out there and what's really costing our system. But really, I like to end with whatever decision we make moving forward, just look over at that employer, that family, your neighbor, your aunt or your your uncle and say, what's in the best interest of that average American out there? And if we just all did that and did what was right, it'd be a different world right now in 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 the healthcare industry, for sure. I'm a believer in that. You and me both, my friend. So if someone's interested in learning more about Claim Informatics, what's your website? Where would you send them? Claiminformatics.com, one word. And or you can email me at d.cornelis, C-O-R-N-E-L-I-S, at claiminformatics.com. Don Cornelis, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you. So let's talk about going over to our website and typing your email address in the box to get the weekly email about the show that has come out. Sometimes people don't do that because they have subscribed on iTunes or Spotify and or were friends on LinkedIn. What you get in that email is a full and unredacted, unedited version of the whole introduction of the show transcribed. There's also show notes with timestamps, just apprising you of the options that are available. Thanks so much for listening.